Manitowoc County, August 2013. Winds from a tornado knocked down the remaining crumbling walls of the once grand Maribel Caves Hotel, a castle-like structure built at the turn of the 20th century, whose guests may not all have been from the land of the living. Rumors of mass murder, deadly fires, and connections to Al Capone have led to decades of reports of haunted happenings at the hotel, even taking on the moniker of Hotel Hell. Boasting countless other ghostly places, including haunted mansions, bleeding gravestones, and portals to hell, Wisconsin has led many to claim it as the most haunted state in America. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you for tuning in to this episode 13. 13. You know what that means. The number after 12. The Baker's Dozen. <laughs> we are idiots. Episode 13 of Badger Bazaar. I am um, your host, Scott Whitman, along with your other host, Mickey Sanders. The idiot making the... Dark. With the weird, the weird trying noises to, on the other trying to make it sound table. like he's got puberty going on. We have hit thirteen, lucky number thirteen, in mid-October. Right, we are fully into Halloween season. This will be a one hundred percent paranormal themed episode for all of those that love that stuff, and there is a lot of you, and even for know, those who don't, even you're for allowed those to who listen don't. To. I don't know if there are any that don't. I know there's a lot that say they don't, but. Well, just because you, you don't believe doesn't shit, mean you're not interested. I don't care if they believe or not. When you look look at pop culture this month, right? Everything is paranormally themed. Everybody's got their ghost tours that they're going on. Living history museums are doing their ghost walks and cemetery ghost walks and all kinds of stuff. And they're massive sellers. So right? we're jumping right in and taking advantage. Well, we're not fools. Well, we, well, we are. You don't but. have to comment on that. But <laughs> Yes, I do. Have you just met You me? know, you look at the ratings on TV, paranormal stuff jump up at this time. Even even when it's not this time, if you look at paranormal activity, Travel Channel, Ghost Hunters is not oh, in like its 20th season. It's like, still the highest rated show on Travel Channel. 
Um, we've only had a few paranormal-themed episodes so far, and you are listening because the numbers jump. Well, so. like, my, my point was, even if you don't believe that ghosts exist, even the naysayers will listen because they're interested. You know, I, I think there's people who... It's the unknown. Right. right? I think people who don't believe want to believe or don't believe want to want to prove that it doesn't exist. It's an interesting subject because we don't know squat about, I mean, we know enough. Maybe we'll never know for sure, you know, and it's, that's interesting. You know, and there, there are a number of universities in England that have parapsychology departments. Duke University in America has a, one of the most renowned parapsychology departments in the world. So, I mean, and then this I is not a that. kooky, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, southern New Hampshire, right? I mean, it's Duke University. So it's being looked at. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you go to southern New Hampshire, I'm well, sorry. I should not have said that. I apologize <laughs> to anybody that goes to southern Fucking New Hampshire. Fucking southern New Hampshire. But, uh, I mean, it's it's out there. You know, there's there's stuff out there that make people wonder. I'm, You know, again, and we've talked about this before. I've, I've done a number of, of investigations, paranormal investigations. There is no... No question in my mind, none, that in our realm, there's shit out there that we can't explain. Right. You know, I don't know what the, what it is. You know, I don't know that there's... If it's energy. Sure. If it's, if I, don't, it's I don't know if it's... Residual. Sp- if spirits it's, of dead people. Right. I don't know that. I don't know if they're aliens. Right, no, they're, right. I was just going to say, it's yeah. along the lines of extraterrestrial. It's just stuff we, we... And I believe that our species is evolving to the point where we're starting to understand this better because we have the technology and the mindset, our, our brains are evolving enough to start at least talking about it and not just going, no, ghosts don't exist. That's ridiculous. No, yeah. aliens don't. We're starting to realize that maybe in this vast universe of ours, other things that we don't know. I mean, even like the, the concept of black matter and all that stuff out in, out in space, there's so many things we don't know, even on our own planet. And we're starting to understand that we don't know. And I, I don't even know if it's a if it's a scientific issue. You know, if 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 I think this is more of a faith issue. You either believe or you don't. I think there's a gray area because I I've never seen it. I've never had anything happen to me. So, but you believe it. Well, no. You believe it's possible. I always say I believe in everything and don't believe in anything. I do believe it's possible, but not having as you'd like to say about extraterrestrial, you haven't seen it, so you don't completely believe it. You you think it could exist, but so I think there is there is a gray area there. I don't believe, but I don't not believe. You know what I mean? Let me put it this way: I think if if you if people who don't believe science is not going to make them believe it. I don't I, yes. I don't believe right right. I think it's going to take an act of faith or or their own personal experience. And chances to are, change if, that. if they're that lock minded, even if they see things that that do represent the paranormal they'll just convince themselves that it's not because right. that's just the mentality right. they have. Right. I, I get what you're saying. I've been in rooms where there's been a voice, a humanoid voice speak that is not there. You know, I, I know that I have been in spaces where things have happened that the, no, there's nothing in our science that can explain what happened. So, you know, that in turn makes me a believer. That doesn't mean I believe everything I see or everything I read. Well, you're and we're still gonna, a cynic and skeptic by no, nature, no as question. I am. And we're going to talk which, a lot about that today. Which, I mean, to some degree, when you are looking and researching this stuff, for one thing, the technology has advanced to the point where you, you can get more audio proof or video proof to break down and study. 
But if you don't question it, that's the problem. If It's people who don't question and just take it as blind faith. It's that cynicism and that skepticism that, that makes it believable and, and become fact at some point. And so you have to be that way. You got to question everything. So we're going to talk today, we're going to have a top 10 list of haunted places in Wisconsin. And this is not necessarily our, well, it's not. It's not our top 10. I know my top 10 would be different from what this is but this is this is kind of a compilation of everything when you google you know haunted places in wisconsin they're usually a list of 10 and usually seven of the seven or eight of the 10 are the same because they just regurgitate one another there's no research done um and you always have a couple that are different so we're we we put together a top 10 of the most places that you see on these lists and we're going to delve into these a little more and and talk about them but to our point the bullshit meter goes off pretty quick in some of these, you, you know. Especially when we're talking, right? And there, some of the there's some of these on this, you know, the same ones like we said keep keep showing up on these lists, and some of these just need to, quite frankly, they need to come off. Well, and we're not afraid. I mean, the things that we think could be real, we'll we'll mention. We're not going to delve too deeply into these because I think we plan on having a full episode of probably everything on this list. So as we get to this time of year, obviously, we have a lot of news stories about places who say they're haunted and they want people to know all of a sudden that they're haunted. So there's a a story that just came out a couple days ago. I saw this from a radio station in Racine, but it's about Elkhorn, Wisconsin, who are now saying that their former city hall building is haunted. And I want to play a little clip for you and hear what they want to say about it. And then Mickey and I will come back and talk about their uh, former city hall building that they now want everybody to know is haunted. Elkhorn, Wisconsin, a city rich in history and tradition, has also seen some recent strange and unusual paranormal experiences. The Walworth County Historical Society, located at 9 East Rockwell Street in Elkhorn, has been experiencing a plethora of paranormal occurrences as of late. WGTD recently sat down with some members of the Walworth County Historical Society to find out what's really going on. Sherry Wozni of the Walworth County Historical Society declined to appear on camera and talk, but she did have this to say. Well, my name is Sherry Wozni, and I'm with the Walworth County Historical Society on the museum committee. And since we purchased this building, we've had several reports of of different things happening. Um, I had talked to one of the uh, ladies that used to work here when it was City Hall, and she said that on numerous occasions she would hear music, um, she would hear footsteps behind her, and whistling. Um, One of the workers that we had working in one of the rooms, something happened with him that he refused to talk about, but he left and he said he would never come back again. WGTD met up with Brian Meisinger of U.S. Paranormal Research to talk about some of his findings and the upcoming October 13th reveal. My name is Brian Meisinger. Uh, I am with uh, U.S. Paranormal Research. I um, started the group in 2014 and had a love of the paranormal for quite some time. So on this location, we got three or four things from upstairs, um, and we're going to show those on the 13th. While we were up there, you could actually hear a woman singing, um, and then we heard what sounded like big band music at one point. Uh, We heard some noises from the back of the stage. Tony got his shirt sleeve pulled, and you could actually hear the fabric clear as day. Because, uh, you know, he looked right over me. He's like, did you just pull my shirt sleeve? I was like, no, I didn't touch it. My hands are in my pocket. Uh, and as we came around the corner, we heard a male voice clear as day 
do the shh. And we all stopped right there in our footsteps. Um, so that was very cool. So those paranormal findings are going to be shown in a public reveal of all of the uh, evidence that they caught at the former Elkhorn uh, City Hall building. But that, you know, that's a good example of the, the kind of things that you hear during an investigation like that. When you're in a, a, a quiet building, those are the things you listen for. Voices, band music, like they said, piano music. Those are the things that kind of come up. They're not as exciting as what Zach Baggins makes it sound like on Ghost Adventures. These are the things that you hear. And when you're in that building and you hear voices like that, and there's nobody there, right? You know, those those are the things that need to be investigated a little more. And those are the things that you strive for as an investigator is to hear those things. Most of the time, it's not going to be so over the top that it's just like, oh, it blows your mind. Well, exactly. There's a, you know, there you get you get those every now and again where it right. sounds like somebody's like literally right next to you. Um, but, you know, normally it's, it's whispers, it's get outs, it's shh, it's, uh, you know, things of that nature. It's footsteps a lot, you know, residual things. Screams or even aberrations that you see in the background, but... Every all of this can be questioned by the by the cynics. Of course, and it, they don't even need to. They're not necessarily. These aren't intelligent beings that are haunting buildings. These are residual things of energy. And you and Jim actually described that, that in our pesticle. Yeah, flare. I mean, it's it's called the stone tape theory. It is a scientific theory that st- stone, natural inanimate objects can act as tape recorders, and play this stuff back, and it can be recorded again today. So it it is scientifically possible that this this happens. It's not necessarily the spirit of a dead person. Well, as you know we alluded I mean? to, it, you can't argue that energy is all around. All we are is energy. Everything that we are is energy. When it comes down to breaking it down to the atoms, everything is energy. So it makes sense that that energy energy could exist in these spaces that have been abandoned or you know left alone for a long time. And that, I mean that's all part of it. When when we uh, I think in the future we're going to do an episode on the Velisca Axe Murder House, which is actually in Iowa, and we've spoken about this a couple of times before. It's actually in Iowa, but there is a Wisconsin connection to it, and we're going to do an episode on that. And the uh, and an axe murder happened in that house. Six kids were killed with an axe, as as well as both parents. In 1911, I believe the, the year was. Man, there were some fucked up decades at the end of the 1800s or beginning of the early 1900s. Yeah, and they all happened with axes, man. Right, I mean, there especially were... in this state. I mean, most of what we're talking about is in that time today. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. I mean, and there there is an, EV, an EVP, which means electronic voice phenomena, on a recorder that has never been debunked. It has never been, it's been scrutinized by the people who would scrutinize this stuff. It has not been proven to be fake, anything like that. I'm going to play that. I'm going to have to get the permission for it, obviously, but I want to play that. It's, you know, most EVPs are about a word or a sentence. This is like a six-minute EVP. Really? And it is the murder. It is what happened in You're that hearing house. it as it goes it on. It is the most frightening thing I've ever heard in my life. That is bar none. I remember you mentioning this in, in a few episodes ago, but I didn't. I don't think you mentioned this. If it is authentic, if it is authentic, and no one has ever been able to say that it's not, it's the closest thing and the only thing we have to going back in time. It literally recorded something that happened 100 years ago. 
I just got the willies just thinking about I'll it. I'll play it for you tonight. I'll find it. I can't oh, play good. it on this now because I can't get permission for it good. yet. But Great. And we're in my home right now, and you like to tell me <laughs> that you hear things. And so I'll go to bed after hearing all that. And Awesome. Thanks, so that, that'll be a, a good you know, a class in, in what an EVP is. It's the most frightening EVP I've ever heard in my life. It's world famous, obviously, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody in, in the paranormal community has heard this. At the time when we do that, I'll get the permission for that and play that for everybody to to hear but moving on obviously going into a halloween season there was a list that just came out and it's the 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 most terrifying place in every state so they took all 50 states and named the most terrifying place in each state what do you think wisconsin is mick you have not seen this list what would be your guess well i don't have your experience and knowledge of the paranormal in general but it's a place you know i bet it's summerwind it's Plainfield. That's what I said. You misunderstood me. Plainfield, the home of Ed Gein. Of Ed Gein. The whole, the city? The whole, the whole, so let me read it for you. It says, this is from KEEL 1017 FM in Shreveport, Louisiana. And they named. I've been there. And they named Plain. Did you have a girlfriend there? I wish she was my girlfriend, but oh, okay. we were in I love. and. Well, well I mean, she was then. Well, we never got to date, but she oh. was a long-distant love. Sounds like a Romeo and Juliet thing. I don't want to oh. talk about it. Shreveport, Louisiana, which is often That's in Mickey's dreams, apparently. <laughs> it says, first... She's not there anymore. This is the home of Ed Gein, known as the Butcher of Plainfield. Gein was found guilty of gruesome crimes committed in the 1950s. His murders, grave desecrations, disturbing hobbies, and burial all took place across the village in the middle of Wisconsin. Gein is buried in the same cemetery he once robbed graves in. Okay. Um, I've been to Plainfield. It's not terrifying. I've been to the cemetery. It's not terrifying. Murders took place there in, uh, you know, 70 years ago. Ed Gein is famous, obviously, for what he did. He's still one of the main guys when we talk about bizarre stuff in Wisconsin. There wasn't even that, all that many murders. There was a lot of grave robbing, too. There were two murders. But, I mean, well, his, at least two. My opinion is his. he's the most overplayed. He was a cannibal. He used people's skin for furniture. Yes. Uh, he was a grave robber. I mean, he, he was all sorts of messed up, and, and the movie Psycho is based on his, his whole existence. As but, is... Um, Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill. Right. right. So it may, maybe he's a little overplayed, but the the guy. There's a reason everybody found out about him, especially back at that time where social media wasn't what it is now, and you didn't hear those stories as often. <laughs> now maybe we've become a little desensitized to all that stuff, but it was pretty fucked up at the time. Sure. Yeah, and it's not necessarily the number of people you killed. I mean, that doesn't. But he was just. It he, doesn't he make was, you more badass, you know what I mean? But he was but sicker than the rest because he, he was. That's. The it was difference. a tribute to his mother, and 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 he killed people that reminded him of his mother, and I think he, he did kill more than two people, and he yeah. made lampshades and reupholstered his right. furniture and shit. Right. So, yeah. And his mother was the, the the core of it all. And obviously, we will do Ed Gein when it's appropriate. Um, but it's been done to death, you know, and there's so many, huh. so many, no pun, pun intended. Pun intended. Yeah. And there's been so many inclinations of it that, you know, we're going to, when we do it, it's going to be pretty unique. Um, and we're going to come at it from a different angle than, than everybody and else. And that's why has, we've so. avoided him and Dahmer and some of these more mainstream because everybody's done those to death, as you said. 
we're trying to come from a different angle with all this stuff and point out stuff that most people aren't familiar with. Right. I mean, people, everybody's gained out. Everybody's Dahmered out. Everybody's Stephen Avery'd out. You know, it's, right. it's, it's. I didn't even know until you said that, but I'm gained out. It sounds like a cool term. We need to start spreading that out. Okay, so the the top ten haunted places in Wisconsin, as I've been putting it, the top ten most popular, sure, or well known haunted places in Wisconsin. That's a that's a good way to put it. This isn't like we said before. This is not our top ten most haunted places. I've been to several of these places. Maybe I would put a couple of them on there. I don't know, but this would not be my list. Some of these places I think would definitely be on there, as I said, but a lot of these places would not be. But this is a compilation of all of the every October when, uh, you know, you Google most haunted places in Wisconsin, you get a thousand lists that everybody has put together. And we took the most that you see on these. And this is not in any order. It's not necessarily one to ten. It's no numeric order at all other than naming ten of them. So grab your pumpkin spice latte and uh and let's hit the musky dusky. Man, did I dusky. think you were going to say something else there? I didn't I didn't know where you were going. I'm glad you chose that. First first up. First up is is a, is a, actually one that we've done an episode on. We've spent uh, some time on this one. That would be Summerwind Mansion in Land Lakes, Wisconsin. This is a, a something that we did we did episode 2 all about summer wind and then we had a follow-up episode with Craig Naring who would be the probably the foremost expert on summer wind and all the goings on there. Summer wind is a a former mansion. It's pretty much just ruins now in uh in Land Lake. So again, if you haven't listened to episode number 2, take a listen to that and we get pretty much into the into the the nitty-gritty about what this place was. It was built originally as a fishing lodge in 1914, I believe, and then it was bought by Robert Lamont, who was a very well-known, well-connected businessman in Chicago, and he turned it into his um summer home for his family. And then uh after they left in the 1930s, all hell broke loose, really. Well, he, he did see an aberration, and he fired his pistol with no effect. From all accounts, as we've discussed, him and his family fled immediately afterwards because they were afraid of of what they saw. And and after that is when the story truly started to build up. So let legend. So the legend is that, that Robert Lamont saw an apparition in his home, and he pulled his pistol out and shot at it, and the bullet holes remained there until the 80s when people were squatting in there. And they they were so afraid of that apparition that they bolted out of there never to return. You know, and what that house did to people, you know, the, the family that lived in there in the, in the 60s and 70s, um, the Hinshaw family, you know, they it ruined their marriage, it ruined their family, it drove them to try suicide. Even construction workers were scared off by their tools being moved around and all that kind of weird stuff. And Arnold Hinshaw himself was, was claimed to have... Been told by the ghost to play his organ in all the hours of the night, and that's what he ended up doing. And as we talked about, it broke up the marriage because he just basically went crazy. It's really a fascinating. Uh, the bodies found in the walls and stuff. Right, I mean, right. it's really a fascinating story. It's a you know the quintessential ghost story, I think. And it, it was very famous. It was in Life magazine as one of the top ten haunted places in America. Even the way it came to an end, that it, it burned down. Legend would say that it was burned, struck by lightning, but. As we discussed, it it sounds like maybe the town folk ended up burning it down because they were 
tired of the whole story. Right. So if you if you haven't listened, if you're interested, go ahead and listen to episode two. Uh, you'll learn about the first edition to our most haunted Wisconsin list. Second on the list, we're staying in that same theme up north in a mansion, and this would be Fairlawn Mansion in Superior, Wisconsin, which, as opposed to Summerwind, still exists today. It's in wonderful condition. It's owned by, uh, I believe, the city of Superior. It's owned. It's well taken care of. It's a museum today. You can visit it, hence a lot of the ghost stories that come out of there today. But Fairlawn Mansion built in 1891 as a private home by Martin Pattison, who was a lumber baron and mining baron in Superior. Pattison, a lot of people, you know, if you've heard of Pattison State Park, that is, that was, that land for Pattison State Park was donated by Martin Pattison to the state of Wisconsin. And that is now Pattison State Park. So that's a familiar last name for people. So Martin Pattison built this house for his wife, Grace, and their six children. It was a 42, it still is, 42-room Victorian-era Queen Anne home overlooking Lake Superior Bay. It's a beautiful home. And even the style is, is known as the Nouveau Rich, which is French, during America's Gilded Age, that, which just kind of sums up the style. Now, this is a story, I, I don't know about the house, but the guy, Mr. Pattison here, he's got quite the story. This is definitely... Something that we will delve into more in the future is Mr. Pattison, I think, deserves um, a little more time to check this guy's background out. But so, there was a lot of scandal that went on in his background. There, well, so this starts in January of 1841. So we go back a little bit here. January 1841, a boy, a baby by the name of Simeon Martin Thayer is born in Ontario, Canada. Right, 1840s were a rough time for everybody. Canadians, Americans, rough time. I remember. Preach right, on. Right, So he grows up poor. Right, and a lot of hardship in his family. He has to work as a child to help the family who they don't have any money. Um, and he basically leaves. He leaves as a teenager, and he's going to go start his own life. And he he winds up in Michigan, and uh, he meets a guy named Joseph Murdoch, and he starts working for Joseph Murdoch, who was an owner of sawmills in Ontario. So Simeon Martin Thayer started working for this sawmill as a sawyer. Worked his way up as a young man and worked all the way up and he started and he became a business partner of Joseph Murdoch. Falls in love with Joseph's sister, Isabella, gets married, and he turns into a very respected man in the community. So this is a boy that was, you know, born into hardship, leaves his family, makes something of himself, and he's very respected in a town called Minden City, Michigan. By 31, he's married, like I said, he has one child and a second on the way. He's a very well-regarded businessman and civic leader. He's elected to Michigan State Legislature at 31. And six days before his second child is born, Simeon Martin Thayer goes to Port Huron, Michigan on business. And he never comes back. Right? He disappears. They don't know if he, was he killed? Did he die? What happened? So obviously his family's distraught. They can't find him. And his family kind of goes through a double whammy here because at roughly the same time, that Simeon Thayer goes missing. Their other sister, Martha, goes missing too. So now they're freaking out, right? And they're like, do we have business enemies somewhere? Are they picking off our family? What is, what is going on? So he now has two children at home. One is a newborn baby, and he's missing. Nobody knows where he is. So Joseph 
his business partner goes to Port Huron to, to find out what happened to Simeon Thayer. And he finds out, he doesn't get specifics, but he finds out that, yeah, he was here and he sold off commodities, <laughs> sold off commodities of their business, which Joseph didn't know. And, oh, yeah, he was here with another girl named Martha. So Simeon Thayer bolts his family with his sister-in-law, the sister of his wife and his business partner. So now Joseph knows what's happened, and Thayer and Martha are gone, right? And what happens is they take off to Salt Lake City. They take sure, off. Sure, that's where it sounds like people would run right. if they were doing exactly, this kind of life. Right, exactly, right. And then they lived a couple of years in California. Score the Mormon capital of the world. So he leaves his wife, his business partner, and his two baby children at home. And uh, as far as anybody else knows, he's gone. He's, they don't know if he's dead or alive, except Joseph knows. And now, obviously, his wife, Isabella, knows too. So they're spending these years in Salt Lake City in California, and then they come to Marquette, Michigan. So they move back to the area, and they're no longer Simeon Martin Thayer and Martha Murdoch. They're now Martin Pattison and Martha Pattison. He bolted his name, and now he has an alias. He dropped Simeon, and now he's Martin Pattison, which is his mother's maiden name. Completely changed his identity. Leaves his wife and babies at home. Bolts, comes back. He has a new identity. His name is now Martin Pattison with his wife, Martha. So they move to Marquette. He invests in uh, land deals for lumber, and he invests in mining for iron ore up in this area, which was huge at the time. He makes a killing, right? Martha inexplicably dies. What happened to Martha, right? Nobody seems to know. She passes away. And Martin is so distraught at this, and he finds solace in his grief with their housekeeper, Grace, who becomes Grace Pattison. So now they move to Superior. Martha's out of the picture now, right? So now Martin Pattison... And Grace Pattison moved to Superior. They're already wealthy. They invest more. They invest in more land deals. They invest in more mines. They make a killing again. He becomes sheriff. He becomes mayor. He's running this town, right, as Martin Pattison. Nobody knows that he's really Simeon Thayer until Joseph and Isabella come back in the picture, right? Isabella is granted a divorce from him, a legal divorce, which should have happened years ago, but nobody knew where he was. She's granted a divorce and a financial settlement, and that is now all public. So now everybody in Superior knows that their mayor and their sheriff is not really Martin Pattison. Man, do I feel like you're talking about me. I mean, this is my life to a T. I mean, this guy... This happens to everybody is all I'm saying. This is just common stuff. So while he is mayor, this happens to him. And he, he it doesn't hurt him at all. Superior, the people of Superior don't care. He's elected mayor two more times. He's doing a good job. Right. I don't care about his personal life. He That's builds, how we should look at things, to be honest. He builds this house in Superior, right? Fairlawn Mansion. The, the house itself... The overall cost was recorded. It was recorded at more than one hundred and fifty thousand, which is nearly four million today. But family history, written in the nineteen twenties notes, total that including furnishings and mechanical equipment, came closer to two hundred and fifty thousand, around six point five million dollars today. So they had some money 
and they put it into this place. And he's at the pinnacle of his popularity, and this stuff happens. This massive scandal happens, and the press is pushing it, right? Scandal, scandal, and nobody in Superior seems to care. He's got money and power. Right, because, you know, he's an employer. They're not going to say anything about this guy. This guy has given jobs, jobs, jobs. And social media wasn't what it is now because there's no way he gets away with it in this day and age. No, you know, but as long as he keeps giving away money and he, you know, to these charitable organizations, nobody in Superior cares. Which may be how it should be still. So this is where they live their lives in Fairlawn. They live out their lives there. He winds up dying in the house in 1918 and in 1920 his wife, Grace, his former housekeeper, donates the house, um, and it becomes a children's home for 40 years, way up into the 1960s. She leaves to go to California. They had four children when they moved into the house. They had eight children. When they moved into the house, they had four children. One of them named Martha. Byron, Ethel, and Alice were the other ones. Then they end up having twins named Myrna and Virna. They were born in 1892. And then twins Lois and Lita... That's two sets of twins, and they were born in 1893, although they died in infancy. But they had two sets of twins after the original four that they came into the house with. And after the two that he abandoned with his first wife. <laughs> right. And never went back to... <laughs> Lots of offspring. Right. So now today, Fairlawn is a museum. And because it's a museum and there's lots and lots of visitors there, lots of ghost stories have come of this, right? Lots of people say they hear children laughing. Obviously, it was a children's home. And there was a story that children, there was a pool in the basement. And there were stories that two children drowned in that pool, which is not true. Because the pool was, was drained before it became a children's home, probably just for that reason. So that kind of thing does not happen. But there were 2,000 children that lived in that house when it was a children's home. There was no doubt there were deaths in that home. But the records for that time are sealed. Why? Why? What are, what, are we, what are we hiding here? Why can't we look at records of the children that were in that house from the 1920s to the 1960s? And they also had a housekeeping crew there, right? And one of the housekeepers that worked for them was a woman named Ingrid, and she was uh, a Swedish immigrant. So there was a program there, and there kind of is today, too, where you know immigrants would come from Europe, and they would come here and they work, and I think they would work for five years before they would become a legal resident. So before she even left for Sweden, she knew that she was coming to work for this family. She didn't know who they were. She didn't know anything about Superior, Wisconsin, right? She just knew that she was coming to work for this family. So Ingrid, the Swedish immigrant, moved here and became, you know, a live-in housekeeper for the Pattisons. Now, she has a relationship with a young man from another uh, community, well-to-do family. That man's family did not like that relationship, right? She's a immigrant. She's a foreigner. She's not of our ilk. So they didn't appreciate. Good they didn't, word. They didn't like that relationship. But, you know, again, this is kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing here, just like Mickey's situation we had talked about before. <laughs> Who knew that was coming? Right. So they wind up. going to cry again. They wind up, they do get married, and they get married at Fairlawn uh, because his family wouldn't pay or, or wouldn't do anything uh, for the wedding. So the Pattisons, you know, gave up their their mansion for their wedding. Long story short, she winds up getting murdered by him. That is a long story short, actually. It is, right. There's a lot more to it than that. She gets murdered by her husband, and she today, and that this is a true story. All of that is true. That is coming straight from the 
from Fairlawn Mansion. That's nothing that to do does. with the paranormal. That's literally the history of the place. Right. That is, a, that is a true story. Now, Ingrid is known to haunt the house today, according to uh, many of the visitors. Which makes sense with that kind of story behind it. You know, and the story is, the thought is, is that while she was at that house, that was the most happy she's ever been in her life. So th- she, if you can choose to haunt a place, I don't know. If you're a conscious being, you know, this, the, the story of Ingrid haunting Fairlawn Mansion is the thought that that is as happy as she'd ever been in her life when she was living in this home with the Pattisons. And they even say that she actually assisted patrons um, like a museum guide, like she's very friendly, she's helpful. I mean, this is a spirit basically trying to be a museum guide because, as Scott alluded to, this was her happy place, so she's a happy spirit. So as we're mentioning, not all spirits come from a bad place. They're not always bad. They're just there. It's just energy, positive energy that you can't necessarily see. But you can feel. And, there, you know, there's a lot of the reports on this is that she's helping visitors at the house. Like, she's a staff member there. Helpful. Right. Like I said, she's a, like a tour guide that's actually helping people out. Right. There, and know? they don't even realize that she's, you know, not alive until, you know, then there, there's a lot of stories where people um, are talking with her and then they go back and they try to find her later and they ask another staff member, where is the girl who was dressed up in the... Because they would actually see her. Yes. And yeah. she'd be wearing... And, and um, she talked with an accent. And yeah. she'd be wearing time-appropriate clothing. And, I mean, she would even tell them where the bathroom was, make sure lost children found their parents, and she'd even occasionally tidy up. However, that's done by a paranormal entity. Yeah, it was very positive. People have seen her. They felt her cold because there's always a cold feeling that people feel when there's somebody near. But it was always positive feelings that she endured because, this, as Scott mentioned, the happiest place she ever was in in her life, and, and that's what she embodies now. Riverside Cemetery in Appleton. This is on every Wisconsin top 10 haunted list that I see. And to tell you the truth, it's a damn shame. Kind of. So in Appleton, obviously, is Riverside Cemetery. It's the oldest cemetery in Appleton. The original cemetery was built in 1850 in the middle of the city. This would be the original cemetery in Appleton, where... Around the downtown area. If you know downtown, if you know Appleton, it's where the old Post Crescent building Just is, south of was. the railroad tracks. Right, so it's just, it's in that block, and that's where the, the original cemetery was for Appleton. But as Appleton grew and expanded, obviously they knew they had to move. Citizens quickly realized it was inappropriate to have right. it there because yeah. there was no room for expansion. And that the middle of the city is not a place for a cemetery. So they moved, they had to move the, and this happens a lot in cities. It's not, it's and, not like people then were dumb. Right. This, and even the soil there wasn't good. Right. It couldn't, you couldn't really build on it for the first part, but you certainly don't want to bury bodies in it either. Um, so they, they moved the cemetery in Appleton to, you know, what is now East Wisconsin Avenue, obviously right along the river. There's still... That's where they came up with the name, huh? That's... Believe it. I mean, they were creative back then. Brilliant! Now, they were still... Think about this. You're moving a cemetery in the 18... What, 1870s? There's no ground-penetrating radar then, guys. No. Right? And they're not... The documentation of people being buried wasn't great either. So they were pulling bodies out of there when they're building on that block in the 1930s, 40s. Who knows if today... All those bodies are out of there. I mean, they've been building there for a while. To my knowledge, 
Nothing has been pulled out of there re- recently, but I'm not going to bet that all those bodies aren't out of there. Appleton newspapers said that all the bodies were moved by 1884. The truth is bodies were still being moved up and dug up at the old site by the 1930s. Right. And and I would guarantee they went it went further than that. So it goes to Riverside Cemetery, and that becomes Appleton's Cemetery, and uh, opens up in 1872. So a lot of the Appleton pioneers are buried there. I don't know if it's the biggest cemetery in Appleton. It's probably one of the most well-known. I sure. mean, probably the most well-known. But there is a grave that is way off to the side. It's all seemingly by itself, and it's it's become very famous throughout the decades, all for nefarious reasons. This is the grave of Kate Blood. So it's the grave of of Kate Blood, her husband, and their three children. The same husband and three children that Kate, who was a witch, killed with an axe late in the 1800s. And if you look at her grave in the moonlight, on nights with a full moon, it'll ooze blood. And sometimes it's warm to the touch. At least that's what the legend says, right? So let's take a look at who Kate Blood was. So born in 1851, she's the daughter of Colonel Henry Blood, who was an Appleton pioneer himself. Very well-known guy in the founding of Appleton. In fact, that's why she's famous. You know, he helped plot out the villages, uh, not only Appleton, Grand Chute, Lawsburg, which was here at that time. He helped um, obtain the site and bring Lawrence University here. Very well-known guy. Her mother... Teresa Catherine South made blood. Her mother passed away young at 36, and Kate was only four years old when she died. So Kate was one of the first people born in Appleton. Affectionately known as Kitty. So very beloved in the community. As Mickey said, she was known by her friends and family as Kitty. On her 21st birthday, she married George Miller, who was an editor at the Appleton Post, which is a precursor, obviously, of today's Appleton Post Crescent. And they had two children, a son that passed as an infant, and a daughter, Zaina Catherine Miller. Notice I said two children, not three, because they didn't have three children. Because the whole story of Kate Blood is complete bullshit. It's complete made up out Cow of shit. Nothing of the Kate Blood legend that we know of today, that if you grow up in Appleton, this is inundated in your head, you hear about this story you know, we were we were growing up kind of when this legend started to take hold, so we've known it our whole life. Everybody knows about Kate Blood. She supposedly killed her family with an axe. All you really need to do... Including her husband and three children, even though, as we just said, she had two children. Now, when you stand at the grave, which is supposedly, you know, by itself, because it wasn't, you know, she was such a nefarious person, she wasn't worthy to be buried by everybody else. It's isolated. At the, at the cemetery, which is not true. All you have to do is look at the grave of her husband, and you'll notice that he was he outlived her by 42 years. Because <laughs> she didn't kill her husband. Probably not if he outlived her. And the three footstones at the grave are not for their children. They're actually for her, her husband George, and George's second wife, who's also buried there. As he outlived her, as we said, by 42 years. Now, what happened to Kate? Kate came down with consumption, which is tuberculosis, and she needed to move to a, a, a warmer, drier climate. They called it consumption before they understood what it was. So Kate actually was on her way to Colorado, because that's where she needed to go to help deal with the tuberculosis that she had. And she actually died in Lawrence, Kansas on the way there. 
Her body was sent back here by train. Her daughter was only two years old at the time. So Kate was not a witch. She didn't commit suicide after killing her family. She passed away at 26 years old of tuberculosis. Now, as we said, George, her husband, did remarry. He lived another 42 years after Kate passed away. And this is all written on the headstone, right? I mean, people people that go to see this headstone, they don't pay attention to it. So this legend happens because her name is Blood. Right. Because her her grave is supposedly off to the side, away from all the others, which is not true either. When that opened in 1872, the front entrance of the graveyard was off of Green Bay Road, which would have put her grave one of the first you saw when you came in. Because she was one of the first people, in the, and they, they almost made a point to put her there. And that road is still there. That I, be, I believe it's the road, because when you go to her gravesite, there's that, that old pavement there. You can even see the brick. Yep. You can see the curb that they had there. So, I mean, that the original road coming in is still there. That was the way to get in the, the cemetery when she was buried there. And the full obituary printed on January 7, 1875, in addition of the Appleton Post, as it was called back then, ran longer than many news stories of the day. That's how big of a deal it was. It actually, the, the obituary read, quote, she lived for others and for those she loved, no sacrifice was too great, which involved their happiness. Meaning she was anything but a witch, but a very well-revered, well-respected, well-loved woman and mother and wife. So how does something like that happen, right? Again, because her name is Blood. Her grave is off to the side. What people think is off to the side. And it's not alone either. There's other graves there. There's one right next to it, which is not affiliated with that family who died in like the 60s or 70s. And there's another grave. It looks like it's kind of perched off itself. And there's another grave marker there of another family who passed out. Not a family, but a, a one individual. So it's not by itself. It's not off to the side. She was not a witch. She didn't murder anybody. In fact, in 1910, the stone entrance was re-erected on Oasis Street, meaning the entrance moved to the cemetery altogether. And it included a chapel and an office space and winter storage for bodies which were used at a time when winter burials weren't possible. But the point is the entrance has moved, and that's why this grave now seems isolated. But when it was originally plotted, this was one of the first graves you saw when you entered the cemetery. So, you know, the point is, that, again, you look at these top haunted sites in Wisconsin, and Riverside Cemetery, because of Cape Blood, is always on that. And it's complete and utter made up. There's nothing... Because her maiden name is Blood is what it's mostly based on. You know, usually there's something that starts a legend. And we've talked about this before on, on the show. Usually there's something truthful that, that starts a legend, right? There's nothing in this story at all that is correct. And, there, you know, you see YouTube videos of people making fools of themselves, looking at, you know, trying to make her... her headstone bleed and you know listening to all these ridiculous that stories that, that come about but th- you know this is one of these that needs to come off of those lists i mean there's nothing about this grave there's nothing about kate blood that deserves to be on there at her, all her influence was so great that at the time of her death condolences were offered in the fond du lac reporter and even the appleton crescent which was a rival paper of the appleton post 
offering sympathies, and it read, quote, In all of the enduring relations of wife, mother, daughter, and friend, few will be so much missed from society here, unquote. That was from the rival paper that originally wrote her obituary. She was that well-received and that wonderful for a person, and yet these stories over the years from people who had no knowledge of her, her existence, her background, these stories just develop to this point where they're based on nothing but hearsay, and yet it's become a legend. Go visit her grave. If you're in Appleton, if you're if you're in close proximity to Appleton, go visit her grave. It's not, you know, everything you read about it, You got it's like a long trail to get down there. It's not. It's literally... Um, I don't know, 50 feet off of the main cemetery. I was Short just, walk down a slope trail. I was actually, I've been there many times. I was actually just there this week when we started. It's um, chained off from vehicle traffic. Well, sure, you can't drive. Well, lots of roads are in the cemetery. Right, or, but because they don't want, they, they have a lot of visitors, but they don't want people just driving up and down and just going there. Without. Well, there's, there's no road there. You can't, there's, you couldn't go anywhere. Right. Well, right, that's the reason for the chain, but yeah. they also do. They don't mind people visiting at all, but they also don't want people just coming by and yeah, well, doing the stupid shit that people do. You know, by all means, v- visit the grave. I mean, the, you know, they actually obviously a lot of people do. Right. Um, but looking for the blood. But yeah, you ain't gonna see any blood. You're gonna see a uh, somebody that was buried there in uh, 1874 in what was at that time a very peaceful plot, and it still is. It's only the blasphemy that's come upon her in the last. 40 years or so when this legend has taken hold for some reason. And the stories say that she murdered her husband and kids. The stories say that she was murdered by her husband. I mean, there, there's lots of variations. And, and as Scott mentioned, none of them are really based on anything that's even close to reality. So that's... Yeah, it's, it, again, it's not often that these legends don't come from something. You know, there's always something in somebody's background that that kind of leads to things like this there's literally nothing with her other than her last name her that name people get carried around starts but, it all yeah so when you see riverside cemetery on these top 10 lists ignore it there's nothing to it number 4 on our list Walker House. Now, Mineral Point, very cool area. Been there many times. One of the more unique towns in, uh, one of the more unique towns in one of the most unique states, right? Um, It's a very old town in the Driftless area, obviously, the southwest corner of the state called the Driftless area because it was missed by the glaciers 10,000 years ago. So ancient ridges and the river valleys and the limestone bluffs that were there then are still there now, you know, and the other thing that, that remains there, what, you know, the rest of the state was flattened by the glaciers. This area was missed by the glaciers, so it's, it's a very rugged landscape. And uh, the other thing that was left was the minerals in the ground, hence the word mineral point, right? And they were easily accessible. One of these minerals, so sought after at this time, was lead. And so the southwestern part of the state became a massive lead mining area and because of where it was they also called it galena or mineral they actually they actually called lead ore those names because of where they were located where it was located and where it was found so the region becomes very popular for lead mining you have a massive influx of cornish immigrants come in here who were very skilled miners and the other things that cornish people were at the time were very skilled 
stone workers, and which is why Mineral Point looks like it does today. It looks like a miniature Cornwall, England, you know, with all the buildings are built of, of limestone. They're all look hand hewed and they're supposed to look that way. Um, a very cool looking area. So the name Badger, Wisconsin Badgers, has nothing to do with the animal, right? So when the miners were mining lead from these rugged bluffs and cliffs, they would cut out little holes for themselves, these little caves where they would rest, and they would take little naps on the side of the bluff, and they looked like badger holes, which is where we get today the Wisconsin Badgers. It's an ode to the lead mining heritage of the state of Wisconsin. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, it, it's, it's... I'm a big Badger fan, so yeah. that just... That surprises me that you didn't know that. Blew my mind. Yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. it surprises me, to be honest. Yeah, I, it's, I'd never it's, heard that. it's got nothing to do with the animal. It's an, it's a, an, an ode to the mining heritage of not just Mineral Point, but Wisconsin in general. Well, I know I mean, that the animal exists here, but it's not like it's predominant, so it does make sense. So, obviously, the way Mineral Point looks today, a lot of those buildings still exist. A lot of those buildings that were built by these old Cornish immigrants at the time, dating back to the 1830s, they're still there. Many of them are listed on uh, the State Historic Register. Pandarvis is probably the most famous one, you know, of these limestone buildings that were built by these Cornish miners still remain there today. And that's why Mineral Point looks like it does today. Now, one of these buildings was one of the oldest buildings still standing in the state, and that is the Walker House. Now, said to be built in 1836, this is a, it's a little misleading. The building, as you see today, most of that was built in the 1850s and 60s, still very old. Um, but the, those buildings were built off of original structures that were still there. So there are parts of the buildings that remain today that were built um, in the 1830s. I think the sign on the building says 1836 which makes it um, one of, if not the, it may be the oldest building still standing in the state. Now, it was built by a guy named William Walker, hence the name Walker House. He purchased the lot that existing buildings already remained on. Because he left Ireland in 1839 and arrived in Maine. After spending two years in Joliet, Illinois, he finally settled in Mineral Point, proving that he didn't originally build the building in 1836. So. He, he, he first shows up in Mineral Point in 1847, which is where I think he purchased that property. But it is believed that he was here before that, that he came in 1841, and he actually lived with other people. So there were no tax logs of him. Um, prior to 1847, but it's believed that he came here in 1841, purchased the property in 1845. Now, it had various inclinations over time. For him, when he built it, it was first his private house, and then he, he you know, it was a tavern, a pub, a boarding house, and then he finally, when he built onto it the last time in the 1860s, made it a hotel because it was now right across the street from the train station that was built, which is still there today, by the way. By the, so the railroad came in 1857. He he turned his place into hotel, which was obviously a smart business move, right? Because all these people were now coming into Mineral Point, and they could now just walk right over to his place at the Walker House, and uh, and that's where they would that's where they would stay. He actually constructed and began renting out a tavern, and by 1859 he added a boarding house that he also rented out. Uh, which was a combination of recently constructed buildings that he'd already been building for a while. So 
this was all leading up to something. He'd been there for a while. He started there as a teamster, and that's why, like Scott said, he wasn't on the tax roll. He was living with other people, but he started establishing himself himself by building all these buildings and eventually they led to this so by 1866 this was the this was the largest building in the southwestern part of the state and you look at it today it's not very big but at that time you know 1866 it was it was good size so william walker dies in 1899 and he leaves the walker house to his niece who sold it in 1900 to charles curtis so charles curtis was a stonemason at taliesin for 14 years, which is a cool tie-in. Frank Lloyd Wright actually stated that Curtis produced stone walls, quote, as fine as the finest in the world, unquote. That's big praise coming from somebody like Frank Lloyd Wright. He praised him as a kind and tolerant and as an artist who produced stone walls, as you said, the finest in the world. Yeah, Frank Lloyd Wright endured this guy and, and, and thought highly of him, so this guy knew what he was doing. So Curtis lives there for decades. Um, it's well taken care of. And he passes away at 89 years of age in 1943, which starts, as it always happens, the predictable long slide into disrepair, decline, abandonment, etc. Right? It becomes low-income housing, becomes, uh, you know, just the, the same stuff we see today. A lot of times it, it's turned into low-income housing, sometimes they're turned into senior living. You know, this basically became... By, by 1957, it was virtually empty and abandoned. Because when he died, his wife and her half-sister took over and didn't care for it much. So there were vagrants residing on the first floor. Sometimes, supposedly, newlyweds were forced to live there before buying their own home. It's around this time that a baby is said to have been abandoned in, in the in Walker like House outhouse, outhouse or something? Yes. Yeah, yep. Jesus Christ. And it, it's like you said, it stayed in continuous use until 1957, but it closed for seven years, standing vacant. But it was bought by Ted Landon in 1964 and restored and stabilized for 10 years before he reopened it in 1974, the year I was born, if that matters to anybody. In the 1970s, well, there were numerous inclin- inclinations from the 60s to the 90s, right? They were trying to renovate this thing over and over again, nothing really was able to stick. And it's when all these renovations began, uh, you know, when people are trying to bring it back to its original glory and stuff like that. This is when all the hauntings start, which is a pretty common theme when you deal with haunted houses or haunted buildings. When you start tearing things apart, when you start renovating it, that's when you kind of awaken what's been in there. The spirits do seem to come alive most from everything we've seen and read. You know, and for the most part, this is normal haunting stuff, footsteps, voices, you know, doorknobs rattling at night, and so forth. Now, in the 1970s, a descendant of the original builder, Walker House, William Walker, was hired as chef and manager of the property. And so when this descendant comes to work on the building, it seems to escalate a bit. Doors begin to lock on their own. Disembodied voices are heard. Walker was actually, this is interesting. So, so Walker, the descendant, is actually heard numerous times speaking to someone in a room, right? So other employees would come by. They would hear the chef talking in a room to somebody because there's definitely two voices going on. And he would come walking out of the room when there would be nobody else there. Or they would open the door and he's not talking to anybody. It's just him there. And Walker never denied this. He said he, he, 
he remembered talking to people and he knew he was talking to people, but there was nobody there. And he was kind of like in this trance state. It was almost like he was hypnotized, like he was in this hypnotic state. So they think the person haunting the building, the man who's rattling the knobs and who's putting putting Walker in a hypnotic state to speak to him, is a guy by the name of William Caffey, who legend has it was hanged by a tree right outside of the Walker house in 1842. So obviously this is prior to William Walker owning the property. So we're going all the way back to 1842. And he was executed for being found guilty of murdering Sam Southwick at the Berry Tavern in Schulzburg, which still remains, by the way. Berry Tavern is still standing. And that's not far away. So there was a scuffle at the Berry Tavern. Caffey pulls out a gun and uh, shoots Southwick dead. Caffey was known as a troublemaker, kind of a thug back in the day. And they handled things a little differently as far as the law. So he, 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 Right, and he did technically have a trial. I don't think it lasted very long. Technically. <laughs> I don't think it lasted long at all. People went, and people came to the judgment, not a judge and jury. So there's, so he, they set his execution, and he's going to be hanged by a tree outside of the Walker house, by legend. And they say that up to 5,000 people came to witness this guy's execution. He was not a well-liked dude, right? And they made a picnic out of it. So people would come people to People were execution. just there to visit some guy hanging. You know, let's make a day of it. We'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have some food. Now, as he's being transported to his the site, the site of his execution, he's banging out his funeral song on his casket with empty beer bottles. Right? I mean, this, this guy was, was a character. And this is all in the record. All this seems to be true. He was executed. He was brought there drinking beer. They allowed him to, uh, to drink beer in the empty beer bottles. He was banging on his casket to the beat of his funeral procession. Now, there are some inaccuracies about this. Uh, it was a scaffolding. It was not a tree. This was this was real. I mean, William Caffey was a real person. He really did kill Sam Southwick. He really was executed. All this and it really true. did go that way as far as why he was hanged. It wasn't the whole legal process was a little different than sure, it is now. Sure, sure. But there was a built scaffolding. It was not from a tree. They did build a scaffolding, and he was not hung, hanged, uh, right outside the Walker House. He would have been. The scaffolding would have been about where the train depot is now, or when that was built in 1857. So we're, we're a little ways away from the Walker House. Walking distance, it's not like it's a long ways right, away. Right, it's still nearby. It's, right, it's not right outside the building, which for years had, had been thought. You even read things online where they say the tree is still there right outside the Walker House. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, not, that's just not true. No, and I, I, I kind of disregarded a lot of that. But the fact that it did happen nearby, and this was a hotel is what would explain what we're going to get into as far as, well, let me just come on and say he was roaming the halls, living on the third floor of this building and appearing in various forms to guests and employees alike. So his spirit remained in the bones of the building. So he's been, there's been reports through the years of a headless figure in a gray mining jacket and denim pants on the wooden porch of the Walker house, which, you know, would fit his description as while he was hung, or I should say after he was hung, when he fell, he was decapitated. He lost he lost his head. And still had his clothes on. It sounds like he lost his head long before that, but they actually took it off because of it. 
So this is who be- they believe is, is haunting the Walker house. They believe it's, it's William Caffey who was executed right outside of its doors. Um, but there's also been apparitions of little girls there, of, of children. There's been voices of children. So again, when you're dealing with a place that's 100 and how old is this place? hundred, Almost 200 years old, 1836. Yep. There's a lot of energy going through these buildings. The little girl plays on the upper floors with a ghost cat and a ghost dog. But everything I read said there's unclear why that even exists. They don't. There's not even a background story for her necessarily. Now, in in recent years, it it got pretty run down. I've actually been when I was the last time I was there was a while ago, two thousand eight ish maybe, and it was pretty. But you have been there. It wasn't open at the time. It was just outside of the property. I don't think anybody. I think the bank owned it at that time. I don't know if there was an owner. Um, but it was pretty run down at that time. Um, but in recent years, you know, by the early 2000s, it was run down and in disrepair again. And it was purchased and owned by Joseph and Susan Dickinson from 2008 to 2011. And they put hundreds of thousands of dollars into this. And it still wasn't enough. They couldn't bring it back. They did open it a little bit. Um, they tried to make a bed and breakfast out of it. And it just, you know, once you have, once you fix one problem, you just... You have another. And these owners from 2008 to 2011 reported all kinds of things going on in terms of haunted activity. They wound up selling the building in 2012. And the current owners, so the people that bought it in 2012, are the current owners still today. And it's open today. And it looks beautiful. You know, that there's a restaurant in there. I think there's a bar. There's a little, like a candy shop or a fudge shop in there. It's, I mean, they have a, a normal food menu it's a restaurant you know it looks really well you can stay in some of the rooms they don't have all the rooms open but i do believe there's a handful of rooms 10 maybe that are open some of them i think have community bathrooms so it's not you know when we're talking about total uh, modern amenities i think some of the rooms may lack that but you're, you're dealing with 190 year old building um and these these owners are pretty dismissive about the haunted history of the place, which I don't, I don't get. As just from a business standpoint, people would come to the Walker House. Well, it kind of goes along the lines of what we said about Taliesin and how some of the guides that we've been told about don't necessarily want to talk about the murders and the fire. So maybe along, maybe they're just trying to paint a positive picture about the place and not associate with all this other stuff, but. In this day and age, as we've alluded to, to the point where people are maybe going too far with the dark and twisted, it is interesting to people. And it's even more of a draw than maybe just the history, the actual history itself. So on one hand, you can understand why the owners wouldn't necessarily want this negative, so-called negative um, history of it involved. But on the other hand, people like you and I will be drawn to this. So it, it, it is... In my mind, it's always like, like even like you said, even about Talius and it, it, why you would go away from that when you could be using it as a draw makes me question the decision. But you can understand. It could be a personal issue with them. They just not. You know, maybe they're just staunch non-believers of that. And right. Maybe they just maybe they frankly, think it's all bunk. They have no right. They have no interest in um, promoting a, a paranormal aspect at all to the building, which is fine. I have no issue sure, with that at all. Everybody's got a right to their opinion. You know, I'm just looking at this from a business standpoint. If I own that place, I'm pumping those ghosts as much as I can. Well, you know and a, lo- I mean? a lot of people will buy a place because right. 
of of the paranormal history, whether they believe it or not. Because but, the, the money that they can make from that, right, you know, because, opening it up for ghost tours or whatnot. Yeah. Because people might not come to the place just be, based on the regular history, the actual factual history, but because, oh, you might have a, you might witness a paranormal experience that's going to draw people even more and that's just how it is right and and the, but like i said the building looks beautiful they've obviously done work to it they have no interest in promoting uh, a haunted aspect to the building but again this continues to show up on these you know these top 10 lists because it's been famous for decades of being centuries almost uh, a haunted um, location is it? Who knows? I've never been in it. I haven't done any investigations uh, inside of that building. Well, it's get just, on it. It's pure legend. They're very, you know, and I guess that would be my most surprising aspect is is how dismissive they are. They're online. I mean, they're very active online. You know, they have a Facebook oh, really? page and stuff, and they and they have a little blurb about it on their website, but they have no interest at all in in uh, in encouraging um, paranormal activity. So maybe once they become more of the ghosts of the place, then you can go and visit it? Um. This is a big one. Maribel Caves Hotel. We've kind of even covered this one already. A little bit. Also known as Hotel Hell in Manitowoc County. Now... As opposed to the Driftless area where the Walker House is, uh, we're going to move over to Maribel Caves County Park in Manitowoc County, which is a geologic area that was formed by the glaciers. So it's an area of rugged cliff lines and rock layers, which um, over the years, ice and climate have chiseled the rock, creating a system of caves and natural springs, which has been created into a county park, Maribel Caves County Park. Super cool area. And there again many times now not in the park but next to the park actually across the highway from the park are the remains of a once grand hotel called the cherney maribel caves hotel also known as we said as hotel hell it's a very ominous looking building it was a very ominous looking building it's it's still there it was it was blown down by a tornado several years ago um, and it's still a very ominous looking building. Before the tornado hit, the whole building was standing and it was just this kind of fr- this bones of this building. You know, it, was, it stood there with no inside. It was just the outside walls of the building. And it's made to look like an old Austrian castle. Originally built in 1900 by Austrian immigrant Charles Steinbrecher. So when it was, before it was blown down, it was a really cool um, almost a roadside attraction for people because every time you anybody who would drive by that would stop and say, wow, look at that awesome looking building. 2013, it was blown down. Half of it was blown down by a tornado. So like one end of it is still standing and then the, the rest is just kind of crumbled in rubble. But it's still a pretty ominous looking building. The, the hotel is built in 1900 by two Austrian immigrant brothers, Francis and Walter Steinbrecher. And it was actually the dream of their father, Charles Steinbrecher, who was an Austrian immigrant. Actually, I should, I should, the two brothers are not Austrian immigrants. They're the son of an Austrian immigrant. The brothers are born in Cooperstown, Wisconsin, not New York, which is right by Maribel. So Charles Steinbrecher was an Austrian immigrant, and he had a dream of building a hotel spa 
in the tradition that they have in, in Europe. So he passes away before he could do this, but it is sought after by his sons, Francis and Walter, mainly Francis, to build this hotel. So it was using local limestone, and it looked much like a European castle. It's still standing, even the, the pieces still standing still look like a European castle. And in its day, in the early 1900s, the hotel had as many as 200 guests. It, uh, you know, you were dining in elegance. The second and third floors had 42 rooms. It had a, a building long veranda along the backside of it. So you could, you know, enjoy the view of, uh, you know, part of what is now Maribel Caves Park. So now the spring water from the caves was piped into the guest rooms. So they had, they had running water from spring water. Um, they also bottled the water and shipped it to Chicago and Minneapolis, which makes it one of the earliest bottled water productions in the nation. They had a bottling plant at the hotel to bottle the spring water and sell it. And they did. It was said to be a destination for many celebrities in Hollywood at the time. They would come and they would partake in the healing qualities of the spring water. You know, spring water then, I think even now, you know, spring water is thought to have these healing attributes to it. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know anything about that. But people believed it. And people came from uh, from far away to come to Maribel Caves and participate in the the healing attributes that this hotel spa offered them in the early 1900s. Built for fine bathing, boating, and fishing is the quote they would use. Fine bathing. Because <laughs> right, they... Obviously, because they had the water pumped in uh, to their rooms. Now, in 1927, Francis Steinbrecher passes away, and his mother um, took over management of the hotel. And this is when the clientele changed. It actually changed before that. Earlier, they started renting it out, even when Francis was alive. They started kind of renting the property out to different managers, and the clientele changed. And a lot of the clientele... um, came from Chicago. And obviously, this is where we get the legends today of Dillinger being there, of Al Capone being there. But be it, you know, that we don't know if Al Capone had anything to do with Hotel Hell or not. The bottling plant makes people believe that that makes sense, because obviously, the Capones ran a, a soda company after Prohibition hit. People believe that Capone was here and he was using, obviously, the caves to store the liquor that he had smuggled in from Canada. Well, it's believed that in 1915, the company actually began to go under, so the hotel was leased. And then in 1920, as we've spoken of in our Vice Northwoods Vice episode, after Prohibition started uh, with the 18th Amendment, it became frequented by John Dillinger as a way a stopover to Eagle River, and as you said, maybe owned by the Kilpone brothers to do their things. So in 1932, it's purchased by Adolph Cherney Construction Company, which is why it became eventually the Cherney Maribel Caves Hotel. He basically used the bottling building as a storage facility for his construction equipment. So the hotel was just kind of went into disrepair. His sisters lived, or his daughters lived in the hotel. They did run a tavern out of it, you know, but the heyday of it being a, a hotel, a healing spa, all that stuff was gone now. So his daughters lived upstairs. They ran a bar out of the first floor and, you know, not a, not a lot of upkeep going on here. And that, you know, it lasted like that for decades. It was basically a tavern and a place where Cherney's daughters lived. And it was sold eventually in the 1970s to a great-grandson of the, the Steinbreckers. 
So again, here we have a descendant of an original owner come back and owned the property, um, kept it as a bar, and he brought in rock concerts, and he, he did, you know, he basically, think of a bar in the 1980s, you know, that's basically what it was, concerts outside. He basically turned into a, a, a music venue tavern. So then in June of 1985, the building burned down, fire gutted it. And it was almost raised, but in 1986, Robert Lyman purchased it with plans of restoring it. And it was going to take a lot of money to restore that. Obviously, you know, this is somebody else with visions of restoring it to its original grandeur, right? And he started doing that, but the building kept getting uh, broken in by vandals. Uh, vandals kept starting fires in it. What was left of the building, the building was gutted by this time. It was said that the skeletal remains could still be found on the third floor and in the basement. So when the, when this was going on, when all these vandals started kicking in the kicking in the door, spray painting it, this is when all the hauntings started. So obviously the connections with Dillinger and Capone are prevalent. No one knows what happens with with guys like these. You know what? They don't buy anything under their name, right? Did they own, did, did Capone own the building? Probably not. Um, nothing's going to be documented about that. But bottling does make sense with the Capones. So now parts of the, of the legends of Hotel Hell. So when all the, vandal, the vandals started breaking in, kicking the doors in, vandalizing it, spray painting it, starting fires in there, then, you know, this would be in the late 80s, early 90s. This is when all the legends of the, of the, the building started. Kind of if, if we go back to Kate to Kate Blood. These things uh, take a life on of their own, and they just um, kind of snowball. So, you know, in the 80s, it was constantly vandalized. And then, you know, you hear stories that there was a mass murder in the hotel, and, uh, you know, a guest killed multiple people with an axe. The building was supposedly used for Wiccan ceremonies, satanic rituals, beginning in the 1980s. So the satanic panic goes on. There's a well in front of the building that is thought to be a portal to hell, and people would look down it and they say that they would see, you know, fire raining in the well. This is all the legends of the building. The building, more legends that it burned um, three times all on the same date. And on the third one, um, everybody was killed in this building. There's no documentation or proof of any of this. This is all legends that have happened and come forth in the last, again, like Kate Blood, since the 80s. All these stories um, take on a life on their own. There's, there's, there's no documentation. There's no newspaper clippings. There's nothing of people dying in fires in this building. There's no mass murder that ever happened in this building. But it takes on this persona of, quote, hotel hell. Because when it's abandoned, people go in there and they kick in the door and they spray paint the walls and they make up stories, right? So bullshit all over the place with hotel hell, with Maribel Caves Hotel. None of that is true. So now in 2013, as we mentioned before, it gets knocked down by a tornado it's still standing. Part of the building is still standing. Half of it's in rubble. Um, the stable behind it is still there. And, you know, it's it's cordoned off now. There's a fence around it. You can't get up to it. The owner, I believe, lives, lives next door, and he's still part of the Lyman family. I believe he might be Robert Lyman's son. Mark Lyman. Yeah. So you can't, you know, people used to go in there willy-nilly all the time obviously but now there's a there's a chain link fence around the whole property they don't want visitors yeah you don't you can't you know much like what we talked about with summer wind all the gawking has taken a toll and um and they put a stop to that so if you're found around there they're going to call the police on you for trespassing it's not it's not safe to be around there for one thing 
Um, it's basically just a gutted old limestone building. And that's all that's left of the legend of Hotel Hell. So that'll do it for part one of our two-part top 10 haunted attractions, most popular haunted attractions in Wisconsin. You know, these places have stories, no question about it. And we need to learn to embrace the history of our state. You know, this is, again, as we say all the time, one of the most unique states in the country. And our history bears that. And some of these places bear that. But when you dig deep um, into the history of some of these places, you know, there's a backstory to some of this stuff. And again, we, we should embrace our history. Ghost stories have been around forever. As long as there have been, you know, conscious beings on the planet, there have been ghost stories. So let's embrace our history, embrace the folklore and the heritage of our state, and continue to tell these stories. And people can believe what they want to believe. Most of the stories that we've heard over centuries, over thousands of years, are, are just based on human existence and stories that have been told, they start from somewhere. Where you know to to what level they get to. Sometimes they're amazing stories. Sometimes they're truthful stories. Either way, it's interesting. And whether it's true or not, it's part of our history. And this state offers as much bizarre history as any, which is why we do this podcast in the first place. So join us next time, which will be on Halloween. Part two will be released on October 31st to finish out numbers 6 through 10 of Wisconsin's most haunted attractions. We'll see you then. Amen, brother. Amen, brother.